Hello and thank you for listening to episode 295 of 60MW. I'm Dave and this is number six in our Grimfest interview shows. And in this one I talk to director John Hyams about his movie Alone. Again, this is another one that's on our YouTube channel. So if you're not already subscribed, please go over there. Link in the podcast notes. Give us a sub on there and you can also watch me and John have a chat as well. And again, you can win a free Grimfest code to watch this. All you've got to do is wait until the end of the show. I will give you the special Grimfest word. Be the first to email it to us and you get a free pass to watch alone. So without further ado, let's get on with the chat. So sit back, relax, get comfortable. And here's me and John Hyams talking about alone. Hi, John. Hey, Dave. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> How's how's things been going? You've had uh, have you had a lot of interviews? Oh yeah, well, I've been doing it this week. I mean, it's great. I'm happy to uh, happy to get to talk about the movie and and you know get have have discussion about it. So I enjoy that. I'm also this is my first week of shooting. We've resumed production on a, a show that I I created for Netflix. We're doing our second season of a show called Black Summer, mm-hmm. and so. Um, so that production shooting just started last week. So it was, it was a exciting eventful week. Um, and nice to get, nice to be back into it. So oh, yeah. happy when all this, a little bit of normality at last. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, as, as, as different as it is, I mean, we're out there, there's a lot of new procedures and regulations. We're all yeah, wearing, yeah. uh, masks and goggles. It's a very, you know, so there's an element to it that's, different and cumbersome and, and, and kind of takes some getting used to and got yeah, your goggles fog up and all these things. And then after a while, once you're sort of rolling cameras, it suddenly actually feels normal and great again. So it's, it's, it's been really nice getting back to it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just kind of at the beginning of our, our second leg of production will take us through October. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed it can, it can carry on and there's nothing, surely nothing else can happen. <laughs> <laughs> careful what you say <laughs> it's crazy yeah i'm so pleased that you know, people are getting back and production starting on tv shows and movies and everything because that's what that's what helps people get through things like this is is entertainment and you know the creative absolutely arts. you know i uh it was it was uh it was interesting because we, we're up in canada here and um you know they don't let u.s uh, citizens into Canada right now, but we were able to get in, uh, you know, again, Netflix is our, is the, is, uh, the, the company behind us. So, um, basically we, we've been deemed, uh, essential workers, uh, in order to, in order to get across the border here. And on one hand that, uh, that, that may be a stretch, but on the other hand, I feel like, you know what, Hey, maybe, Maybe we're providing a service everybody needs right now. So uh, I'd agree with so, that. I would definitely. Well, maybe there's maybe there's some truth to it. <laughs> oh yeah, I've, I've been missing like new going to the cinema for one thing was not been doing that for ages. New films coming out. It's oh you know because I'm a big yeah cinephile. that's tough. It's that's tough, and I miss that. Uh, you know, I miss I miss live events, whether it's uh, sporting events or movies, of course, or concerts. Those things that's, that's, that's the part where, uh, you know, there, there's always going to be a strong desire mm. for communal experience of entertainment. And as much as I've, uh, let's face it, a great deal of 
my favorite films I've ever seen and ones that influenced me profoundly, there's certainly a large percentage of them that I saw watched at home on home video um, when I was young. But uh, that being said, there's still, there's still nothing like being in a big darkened room mm-hmm. with other people, your attention all focused on the screen. Yeah. And I think especially uh, for certain, certain genres, of course, comedy in, with a group is amazing, but oh, horror yeah. and thrillers, you oh, know, watching yeah. those on a, on a Saturday night, 10 PM showing, you know, is always the most, most fun way to do it. I mean, I'll never forget my experience of seeing the first alien in the theater. I was probably nine years old. Um, and my older brother and myself and my friend, uh, my mom dropped us off and bought the tickets for us so we could go in. It was a neighborhood theater and sitting in that big dark room with this huge screen and, and being immersed in this world, it was so tense and terrifying. And then the, uh, the chest burster scene <laughs> happened and my older brother got up and sprinted out of the theater <laughs> and he ran home. So now it was just me and my friend in this theater. And by the time you get to the last act of that movie, we were literally huddled together. Like, you know, like, you know, a couple of schoolgirls, you know, just completely, uh, just trying to make it through the experience. And when it ended, I mean, it's still to this day is the most frightened I've ever been in a movie. Um, and the most intense experience I've ever had watching a movie. And I think that's, you know, it's moments like that, that make you want to be, make you want to make films, you know, make you want to put an audience through that incredible experience. I had just the same watching Jaws as a kid. My dad took me to Jaws when it opened up, and I was 10 when it opened up. Here, 75, 70, was it 70, 75, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I was 10, and he took me, and, he, and I was so scared and loved being so scared that I asked him, will you take me the next night? And God bless <laughs> him, he did. He took me two nights running to watch, and I was scared stuff, and that was it then. That was the film yeah. that got me hooked on cinema, um, especially within the horror genre, so... Yeah, oh, for sure. Show. Jaws came, you know, I didn't get to see Jaws on the first go round, but back then they used to re-release movies. So I actually saw Alien before I saw Jaws, but then Jaws made it in re-release. I remember uh, Alien over here. I remember the one of the national tabloids opening it up and it was the center spread and it was a huge picture of a, a an audience watching Alien. And it was, is this the scariest movie ever made? And it was just a whole cinema full of people just screaming like this. Yeah, for me it was. And I had also seen, I had seen every slasher movie that came out soon after. And, uh, and I had, you know, I, I liked, I loved horror movie. I love monster movies Mm -hmm. as a kid. I love monster movie makeup. I was really, I always thought when I was young that I wanted to be a, you know, makeup effects uh, that that's what I yeah. wanted to do. I wanted to be, I wanted to be Dick Smith. Oh, um, oh yeah. And, uh, but still 
And I, and still to this day, again, it's my 10 year old self, but still to this day, that, that experience of the first alien, nothing has ever compared to that for me in terms of something that scared me to the point where I didn't know if I could make it through the movie, (laughs) you know, it was such a, it was such a visceral experience that, that really Scott created. Mm, And I think in some ways I've always been chasing that in some way. How do you create something that is, that is visceral Mm. like that? How do you create? And in many ways alone, while a vastly different movie, but it was a, it was a chance to focus purely on just kind of as a, as an experiment for myself, how do I just create kind of crystallized, a crystallized uh, exercise in tension and creating tension and how, how can you sustain the tension? And, you know, when do you, when do you relieve it a little bit? How, how much can you wind it up doing the, you know, what creates tension? When do you lose it? So it was all, it was in many ways, like, so every, every project you embark on, there's something that is, uh, is drawing you to it. And, and in this one, it was, it was really, how do I create a, just a binary experience? Because I feel like genre films, certain ones re- really are that they, they either kind of can hold your attention and either if it's a comedy, make you laugh. That's a very binary experience. If you don't laugh, then it's, then it didn't work for you. Um, or if you don't find it funny mm-hmm. and <clears throat> for a thriller, which is different than horror, uh, in a certain way, but they're obviously cousins, but you know, the suspense thriller, if, you know, in the Hitchcock sense where you are and you are just kind of playing with the tension and expectations of the audience and, and you're leaning into the expectations and then trying to take a turn just when they're, even that turn can be a subtle thing. It can just be not delivering with the rhythm that they're expecting, you know, sustaining a shot and not cutting until they expect it. All, little things, um, not giving them the music they want or taking the music away. So it sounds like a very technical exercise, but, but all movies have that element. And then of course it comes down to, uh, it comes down to performers who are going to engage you. And that's in the end, the most important thing. Yeah. But the loan is essentially a two handout, isn't it? For virtually all the way through it. And yes, two such great actors that, that that pull it off all the way through that get you invested in their characters from either side. It just drew me straight into it all, all the way through and didn't let go. I think when I emailed you, I said it took me ages to prize my fingers from the sides of the couch after watching (laughs) it. And that's testament to the performance as well. I mean, and that's, that is all them. Of course, you can only be the, the, the audience can only be frightened if the character is convincingly frightened, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so much of your casting decisions in these things comes down to finding a performers that, that pull you, pull the audience in, you know, and, and this one, especially because it's very minimalistic, very light on, exposition dialogue there's a lot of you know non-dialogue uh periods of time in the movie so you need uh certainly in the character of jessica you needed an actor who kind of could just um pull you in that meaning that you could kind of project onto their onto their face Mm -hmm. and onto their their energy uh 
there is something internal about it. And some of those things are physical, her eyes, things that pull you in. And some of it is a great deal of it is just their, their behavior and their essence. And I felt like that was, you know, if you think about great uh, horror films, um, take the shining as an example, you know, that, uh, Shelley Duvall's character is by no means uh, an antagonist. She's the protagonist in some ways, or she is, you know, one of our heroes. But the casting of her was brilliant because nobody could look haunted in the way that Shelley Duvall does, you know, in quite the same way that Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby. There's something haunt as a haunted quality about her that that is part of, that's another part of what is frightening the audience. It's not just that they're afraid of Jack Nicholson. They're looking at Shelley Duvall and that's making them frightened viscerally and not frightened of her, but she's kind of, it's like Edward Moog's screen. It's like she's, her expression in her essence is, is creating uh, an unsettled feeling in the audience. So you're, you're, your hero, your protagonist in a thriller has to, has to do that somehow for the audience. You, of course, have to care about them, but you have, when they're frightened, it has to make you frightened. When they're tense, that has to translate to you. And it's, it's something more than just acting frightened and something more than just being tense. It's, 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 it's kind of, again, it's sort of a visceral connection to, to a particular performer. And, a, and in this case, one that was very internal. And by the same token, I felt like Mark Menchaca needed to be both because he needed to, there was a number of different ways of casting that role. You could either cast the role completely like against type and find sort of a um, leading man type or a, a kind of Jimmy Stewart type mm -hmm. that, um, now has to convince us of his danger and malevolence. Or you could cast someone who's just already uh, a very character, you know, creepy type. But neither one of those seemed to be the right idea. Uh, if you went with the Jimmy Stewart route, then it's like, okay, this whole thing is like, do we buy how malevolent this guy is and how dangerous he is. And he doesn't, and you want someone that's kind of making you unsettled when you first meet him, that you're judging yeah. him, but you're not sure if he's overtly terrifying, that doesn't work either. And Mark Menchaca, again, he leaned right into it. And, and, and I love him you know, because he's actually, I think he's a, I think he's an incredible actor and he's also one of like the most charismatic, fun, beautiful guys ever. Like he, you know, Mark is just the life of the party always. When Mark tells a story, you want to hear it. There's all, they're always good stories. He's just a lot of fun as a person and, and, and he's really funny as well. And so he kind of brought all that to it. He brought, he brought his charisma to the table, even with like a goofy mustache and like Jeffrey Dahmer glasses, he still could, he still kind of grabs your attention. So when he has to give his big speeches, it's, uh, 
he still is kind of commanding the stage. And he is, in many ways, these two actors uh, needed to needed to have tremendous chemistry with each yeah, other in yeah. the way that you would in a romantic comedy. You know, these, these two needed to have chemistry because they're essentially doing, doing their dance through the whole story and they're scene partners. Even when one is talking and the other one is hiding, they're always, mm-hmm. they're always kind of in this together. And, and they were, you know, they were both really generous with each other. I mean, they got on great, which was, was important. And they, and I think Mark made, made Jules feel very safe and, you know, was, was kind of her, uh, you know, he just was her, her friend and, and all the way through it. So they were really able to mix it up and they got super physical with each other and oh, yeah. went to some really heavy places with each other. But, always, you know, always taking care of each other at the same time. You do, you do really buy into both characters. Like I say, it's testament to the performance of both of those. And you do with your part in it, of course. I'm glad you mentioned with shot length as well and playing with people's expectations of of that. And I love the fact that there were shots that, that carried on and drew out the tension and the difference in the composition of the shots, even going into extreme close-ups. There's a shot, and again, without giving any spoilers away, there's a shot... For for quite a while, just just on her eye, and you're watching, and the tension's building, and you won't you sat there almost wanting it to cut away because the tension's just getting so much. So as you're putting the film to, together, what how how do you even begin to plan things like that for for how you're going to compose each shot and when you're going to hold hold it just that little bit beat more to get the audience really sucked into it. Well, I, I think it's a, I think what you're saying is a good point is that you're, you're looking for, in, in the case of uh, this movie, we were looking to, to kind of design it and construct it in a way where you're using, where you're kind of juxtaposing things mm-hmm. that are, that can be jarring, you know, to go from something wide to something very close, what you cut to, to hold on something for a while, even if it's, just for a couple seconds too long, then that cut becomes, becomes forceful. And, you know, I, it's funny. I've, I've seen great filmmakers do it uh, forever. You know, all, all, I think all the best filmmakers really know how to, how to hold a shot and how long to hold a shot. But I think someone that really started influencing me a lot you know, probably around 15 years ago is when I started really getting into him was Michael Haneke. And uh, I went through a period where I was just kind of obsessively watched all, I think I first saw uh, Caché might've been the first one I saw. And then I did, you know, did a deep dive and just kind of watched everything he did from funny games on. And, and I really think he's, you know, he's one of the real masters of, of cinema. And I remember in watching his movies feeling like he actually was, was torturing the audience in how he would hold a shot that he would, he would withhold a cut from you to the point where you were really um, getting incredibly anxious and (laughs) he did it like sadistically. And it, and it was, it was so effective. And he, and, and if you watch any of his films, he really 
holds the cut over the audience. You know, he's, he, he's always kind of giving you a point where you expect it and then not giving it to you and then waiting and then the making, and then stretching it out beyond that point. And it's not just as simple as having a long shot. It doesn't, it's not so easy. He's, he's making things happen in that shot too. Um, so I learned a tremendous amount from watching his films over and over, you know, all of them. And again, starting in the middle and then going back to the beginning, which sometimes I think is a great way to uh, study a filmmaker's kind of filmography is that you, you, I don't necessarily think you start at the beginning. I mean, you can, there's always so many ways to do, but it's somehow I think you start with the one in the middle or start with the one that is contemporary in that moment, if you like it, mm-hmm. and then progressively go backwards. Because if you do that, you start to see the immediate kind of evolution yeah. versus going back to their earliest uh, film and then, and then somehow you might lose, uh, you might just look at that like, well, this is kind of a crude movie. You can, you can uh, you know, go back to Scorsese's student films and you may not really realize what is going on there until you kind of move your way back through mean streets to get there. Uh, to, we don't live here anymore. You know, same thing for, uh, you know, it's like Nolan. What was his first one? Following, I believe. Mm-hmm. Did you yeah, ever see that? I don't know if I've seen following. I was going to, I was going to yeah. say prestige is an, is an early ish. Well, it's not that early now. Well, no, I mean, Memento was before that. Memento, of course, I, think, yeah. I think following is what it's called. And it's, it's like a black and white, um, you know, it's like a 16 millimeter black and white movie. Yeah. But if, if you go back, you know, if you watch that, you know, before you see the dark night, it, it's, uh, you may not connect it, but if you slowly move back film by film and then you get to that, you see the roots of, of where these ideas started forming. So I doing that with Henneke, I recommend to any, any student of film <clears throat> start, you know, start with something like cachet, which is very, is, is, is accessible in many ways. And it's a great thriller is what it really is. But then you move backwards and uh, you start to see, I remember one shot of a person playing ping pong or like practicing ping pong. He's just hitting the ball and it just, the the shot holds and he just keeps hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. And you're just waiting and you're waiting and you say, what, when is this shot going to end? What's happening here? And by the end, you're just sort of like beside yourself (laughs) and then he stretches it longer and then he ends it. And, uh, so uh, all to the point that I, you take a lot of that from him. I also think there's, you know, in many ways, the, the uh, shot length and how long you hold a shot is, uh, is, is clearly an important part of, of building tension mm-hmm. in a scene. But I think that, you know, one thing everyone who makes films understands is that the audio side is ultimately, I would say 60% of your experience in the visual is maybe 40. Uh, I, I always think the audio, which is not just sound, but music and putting those together, they all occupy the same space. So I don't even think of, I don't even think of sound and music as separate elements. You know, we, we, we try to almost think of them as a single department, uh, sub departments of the same department. 
they have to work together. You can't just have, you know, your sound team do a sound pass and your composer does a bunch of music and then you try to mix it together in the end. Like you, they have to, they have to reinforce each other and stay out of each other's way mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and work together to create what really is the, the heartbeat and the pulse of the whole thing, the, the thing that's not just of impacting your emotions, but it's, it's the part that is actually connecting to your heart rate. Yeah. And yeah. In, a, in, a, in, a, you know, in a thriller, you're trying to manipulate someone's heart rate. And so how the audio is functioning in these scenes is really critical to what you're experiencing. And, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the lessons you learn are, are at times counterintuitive. Uh, you know, when, when you think about a thriller, you know, we immediately think of kind of Hitchcock and Bernard Herman. So you think of kind of, uh, which, which is incredible and brilliant, mm-hmm. you know, that his score for psycho and all that is amazing. Um, by the same token, heavy music and and really upfront music sometimes works against tension. Um, so it's really about where where is the music, and then when do you take it away, or how do you how does the music kind of uh, set you up for something? But the absence of the music at times or music that, that isn't doing what you think it should be doing. And at times can become more of a sound and atmosphere, which in, in the case of alone, we really wanted our music to become sound at times. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and by doing that, you're again, taking the audience's expectations and then you're, you're, you're kind of subverting them. And then if they don't, if the audience doesn't have music in a given moment, then they're not able to, anticipate when the thing is going to happen that they're waiting to happen. Yeah. And so that's a lot of, you know, that's the fun you can have with it is, is, is trying to use that and use quiet moments to actually create, you know, even more tension than a, than a moment that has pulse pounding, you know, music. So I think the audio is in the, not, not just, not just the level of it, but the choice of what, Oh, is yeah. you know yeah. is 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 the choice of what you're hearing is uh, is uh, one of the is the secret weapon of cinema really it's the it's I think all great films are operating on an on an audio level that is 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 sometimes um, far more complex than what's happening visually. It is, and it is that fine line of of using the the sound, and something that jumped to mind was Hitchcock's Frenzy, where he's outside and is the hustle and the bustle of the street, and he walks into a building, and it, the the whole soundtrack goes silent as he walks up the stairs, and that really builds the tension. Sure. They, they could have put some dramatic music in there to build it up, but the use of silence in that, and it it, it works in alone as well, and as oh. well as well as all of that, it's all wrapped around such spectacular scenery as well yes. where was this filmed this was filmed in uh in out, just outside of portland in and around portland oh, okay and so we um you know we chose 
we chose it specifically for the movie, really. Um, we were, and it was kind of a rare situation these days. You're always, you, you're, you're often choosing where you shoot something based on tax incentives and, and, and things mm-hmm. like that. But yeah. our budget was so, so small that in the end, that all those tax incentives were fairly negligible in terms of the, the difference from one to another. And we just were able to make the decision, well, where should we shoot this? And we all immediately agreed that the Pacific Northwest had the kind of landscape that we were looking for, something that um, your character really, could really get lost in it, yeah. with the kind of rainforest and the massive, just the scale of, of the trees and the cliffs. And, and you know, we wanted something... With, our, 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 you know, our setting is obviously a huge character in the film and you want it to be both, you know, beautiful and breathtaking, but also threatening at the same time and threatening because of its vastness. Yeah. You know, the idea of escaping, uh, a, a, escaping a, a, a dangerous situation and, escaping to freedom and then to find that what, you know, now, now your problems just started. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, that's what I loved about Matthias Olsen's script was that um, it, it, you know, it starts out as a, as a, as a very kind of, you know, woman versus man, uh, dual like standoff, uh, or, or kind of cat and mouse thing on the road. And, and then it becomes sort of woman versus man, woman versus nature, uh, you know, almost like a, a deliverance like, yeah. um, scenario in the second half. And I thought, uh, you know, I, I just loved the construction of that. It's so simple. It's a very simple movie. And that's what attracted me to making it was I loved just how, simple and basic it was from a story perspective. And, and that was really the challenge. You know, it's not about twists and turns. It's really about, can we take the most basic streamlined uh, thriller concept, you know, of one human trying to escape another human from another human um, and how, how to, uh, how to kind of manage this threat. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I loved how we could sort of celebrate the moment to moment, uh, the, you know, as the, the, the kind of moment to moment challenges that she will deal with both in, in the wild, in the woods, dealing with elements, dealing with physical, you know, uh, with injuries and, mm-hmm. and the isolation of that coupled with, the idea that you are being hunted by someone that could be virtually anywhere yeah. and you're not in a desert where you can see them coming from, from, you know, a mile away, but you're actually in a place that's filled with obstructions and kind of shrouded and no one, you have no idea where civilization is because you're in the middle of something. Yeah. And and, and I love that about the script and in Portland, you know, in the areas surrounding it, it, it really has that kind of landscape. It's really kind of, um, and a very challenging 
to shoot within that and to shoot the way we wanted to do it. But uh, it ultimately, um, I, I love um, all the settings and locations that, that were, you know, we were able to find for this and how we were able to utilize the landscape. It, and I think, again, our, our DP, Federico Verarde, I think he really deserves tremendous credit mm-hmm. for shooting something in a way that's not taking the easy way for something like this. Because when you're hiking in the woods, the, the, the temptation is just to kind of have, you know, travel very small and just kind of chase everyone around with small cameras. But, you know, he was determined and, and I, um, and I loved his ideas and decisions to really make this still have kind of a lockdown creeping, gliding, almost very classic approach to, to coverage and, and taking a delicate approach to lighting and, and creating a harsh environment that's both, you know, beautiful and, and, and kind of menacing at the same time. So I think he, uh, uh, it, it was. I think he deserves a ton of credit for that. Oh, definitely, because it does come across as both. It does. It is beautiful to look at right from the beginning, and then it does. It does move on to be menacing, and part yeah. and everything that Jessica goes through. They're all things that, as a viewer, you can relate to, and just one of those things is the elements, like you said, that she goes through. And because there was a lot of exterior filming there, did the elements ever conspire against you making the film? Were you ever up against it with the weather? Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it was, it was, it was a case where, you know, we would be, it would be raining on us and then we're still making rain, you know, but, (laughs) but, but but I think we didn't go to the Pacific Northwest hoping for like controllable weather. I think we knew we were going to a place where the weather's going to change all day long. You're going to get rained on. Uh, it, It ultimately the weather in many ways uh, agreed with us, but it was, um, it's interesting. I've worked in, you know, winter settings, you know, I've worked in snow. I mean, you know, we just shot up here in Calgary in the dead of winter. Um, I've been in Bulgaria in the dead of winter. I've been in Chicago. I've been in very cold temperatures and, and shot in those elements. There was something about the damp, cold nights mm-hmm. in in the Pacific Northwest that was some of the most challenging in you know weather and environment I've I've ever dealt with in terms of when, when it's that wet you can never get warm you're always cold you're always wet so I mean I just remember those night shoots uh, we were there where you really just kind of felt it in your bones and and so it was it, it, i mean there's certain there's a certain fun in doing these kind of arduous shoots and this one you kind of knew we were going to be getting into it doing it and, it and it sort of delivered that so there's a part of me that really enjoys that but um but but it certainly lived up to the challenge and i think everyone felt it and you know, every day, especially we were there in the fall. So the sun's going down at 5 PM. I mean, every, every day at wrap, when you drove home, it was pitch black, you know, we're, we're an outside, uh, hour outside of the city where we were staying. So it's, you did this one hour long drives at night, every night. 
And uh, it was, yeah, it was like uh, the whole thing was, was a physical challenge. I mean, mostly for our actors and stunt people. Um, you know, they were just sitting there getting dumped on by rain towers and, uh, and all of that. But, but looking back on it, the weather kind of really, while it, while it was tough, it, it, it kind of did what we wanted it to, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's, you know, especially in the fall, you go there in the Northwest, the clouds just kind of sit there. It's just this gray sky that you feel most of the time. Ooh. And then we went back, we went back for a few, we had scheduled a few days of shooting to, to be, to come later on. Um, and we went back during the summer for those last few days. And it was really beautiful at that time. It's, it's a lovely place in the summer. <laughs> it's pretty, 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 uh, pretty dreary. <laughs> There's a conversation I've had with a lot of filmmakers over the years is to do with mobile phones and how they're the bane uh, of a lot of filmmakers when you because you've got to think of ways to, to write them out and some of the filmmakers that I've talked to just to do with Grimfest in the you know in the last few days their film's been set in the 70s before the phones and so on and hand on heart John out of all the ways out of all the films I've seen for phones being written out now mobile phones are used with it within this film and and it and a very tense way of using them as well. But there's one specific scene where <laughs> the use of a mobile phone is written out and hand on heart, it's the best way I've seen on a film for a mobile phone to be written out, John. So congratulations. <laughs> we sat here and absolutely loved it. <laughs> That's great. Well, credit to Matthias. Those, you know, those were, those were in his script and yeah, you, you're, you're, you're right that the, the mobile phone is, is the bane of our existence. You know, it's, it, I think it was really the bane of our existence in thinking about it, you know, 10 years ago when you thought about, oh, so, you know, we don't get it. You can't do any more phone booths because phone booths are so cool. They're so yeah. cinematic, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love when the character goes to the phone booth, but we really can't do that anymore. Um, but I think what I like about Matthias's take on it was he he kind of, and, and, and we really tried to do that visually as well as kind of put the, the, the phone front and center as like, again, it's sort of a character in the movie. It's hanging out from the first 60 seconds of the movie till the end. Yeah. It's a, it's a factor. And, and in many ways, I think Matthias was very clever in kind of dangling it out there to be like, okay, how are we going to use this to, is it going to lose reception? Is it going to, is she going to lose it? Is he going to, you know, it, it, it's almost like confronting all of your expectations mm -hmm. and then somehow managing to keep that character of the phone alive throughout the movie and have it really even play into climactic situations. Yeah. In, I think a clever and not contrived way in a way that is actually satisfying. Um, so I think that was, that was, you know, all, all Matthias's uh, concept on the page. And, and I, I love the, the use of it because yes, I, I've many times, you know, been working on things and writing things where you're like, okay, how do we get rid of the phone? Let's just get rid of the phone. How do we, what do we do to get rid of the phone? And, and, and then after a while you, you start to realize and what I appreciate about what Matthias did is that it, it goes beyond getting rid of the phone because you have to, you have to reckon with the phone. It's, it's, it's a big part of our lives. So 
um, just getting rid of it is a bit of a cheat. Yeah, we we really did. We sat here and we we cheered. We went, yes, it was such a great way. <laughs> and it was, I think, it was as well with all the tension that was built up watching it. It was once we saw the way that that had happened. It was as small as it was, a little bit of a release for, for us with the how ingenious it was. Before we wrap this up, though, John, I've got a there's one thing I've got to ask you, and I just want to circle back to something you said earlier on about going into a filmmaker's work and starting part way through for anybody watching this on the video show and listening to the audio show where would you recommend people would start with you if they go oh, okay john hyams yeah let's let i want to see what he's all about what would you recommend as the starting point for you well it's, it's an interesting point i mean i think it, it probably applies to me as well because mm. the first things i did were documentaries and so very different yeah, from yeah. all this. and i think most people uh Anyone who probably, you know, who knows who I am, their, their entry point was probably Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. That's probably most people's entry point. That's the first time that, that you know, uh, that, that many, you know, journalists wrote about something that I did that, that put my name out there in any way, you know, in, in the kind of cult genre film space. And I think it's a good entry point, actually, uh, because... Day of Reckoning, in, in many ways, was, was, was a culmination of a lot of everything I'd done before that. And, and if you look at the things before that, which, you know, before that I did Regeneration and Dragon Eyes, and then, um, but then going back to my two documentaries, I mean, you can start with documentaries if you like documentaries, but, but I think it's, it's kind of, that would be an interesting way to go backwards that way and see those, and then moving forwards, I mean, of course, right now, Black Summer, that's really what I've been spending the last several years doing. And uh, that's, that's uh, to me, I, I feel I wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to do Black Summer without Alone. You know, Alone kind of taught me something. And in many ways, you know, I did two features back to back. So I did a, movie, a film called All Square, uh, which was actually a kind of a dramatic comedy, very, very different from anything else I've done. Um, and then alone I did, I shot those in the space of six months probably. Um, but they, you know, but they ultimately editorial of those had a different pace because I then got into black summer soon after that. But I think all of those things show, you know, you, you can kind of trace as with any filmmaker, you can just trace what they last did and how that influences the next thing. And, And for me, um, those two, chances to make uh you know those to get back into features after not having done them for for a number of years um and especially alone which i really was you know i think in 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 all square was just focusing on in that case working with some incredible actors and the gift of that the gift of working with some really brilliant performers and and seeing the value that in the end whatever whatever tricks you're doing as a filmmaker, whatever craft, whatever cool shot you came up with, it's all sort of meaningless if, uh, if the, the, the people you're pointing the camera at aren't, aren't uh, just captivating and, and it, it's really all about them. It's like, you know, you can be the best band in the world, but you live and die by your lead singer. And that's it, you know, and, and, and there are lead singers, you know, and, and if you, with a great front man, you can change everyone out behind them really, mm-hmm. uh, because you want to see that front man. 
And so all square reinforced that in my mind because it was a chance to work with, you know, brilliantly talented actors and Michael Kelly and Pam Adlon, Harris Eulin, Isaiah Whitlock, Josh Lucas, Tom Everett Scott, just great, great actors. And then alone, again, a chance to work with brilliant actors, but really working on uh, suspense and tension and, and, and really taking on the thriller genre in a way I'd always wanted to, because before that I'd been kind of, pulled into some action cinema, but, but suspense and, and thrillers, you know, those are always my favorite movies are, are you know, in their heart thrillers. Um, even Apocalypse Now is a thriller, you know, in, in its core. I mean, Taxi Driver is a thriller in its own right. Um, Sicario is a thriller. Like, these are all great movies that, that do so much more than just be a simple thriller, but the engine that pulls you along is that they're suspense thrillers. Um, so I love the versatility of that genre. And uh, in many ways, Black Summer, yeah, some people may say it's a zombie genre, but I don't look at it that way. To me, it's a thriller. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a show that is a suspense thriller. Yeah. And, and it happens to deal with, um, you know, the end of times. But um, so I think that, yeah, Anyway, to answer your question, Day of Reckoning is probably a good entry point. It is. That's a great one. And Regeneration. Yeah. I love both of those too. <laughs> <laughs> well, for cool. the sake of the edit, John, I, I will wrap this up. Again, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I can't wait for everybody to watch Alone at Grimfest. I'm sure they're going to absolutely love it. I'm going to watch it again when it, Grimfest starts at the beginning of October. Uh, I'm going to... I'll get rid of these nails first. So I'm not going to dig them too much into the couch this time. <laughs> this time. But I'm looking forward to watching it again. But uh, just for the sake of the edit, thank you, John. And wish you luck in everything going forward. And, and let's hope we do get some normality and, and you can carry on doing what you do. I hope so. Thanks so much, Dave. I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat. I appreciate you watching the movie. And uh, and, and thanks for, for, for giving uh, us a platform to let other people know about it. Because, you know, this is, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that we're in Grimfest. It's been, you know, these, these last couple festivals have been, has been great between Fantasia Fest and now Grimfest and the people I'm talking to. This is, this is how we can get this movie to the, to the people that uh, I know will appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, John. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care. And the alarm bell, as always, brings to an end another interview show. Just one more to go in this series of seven Grimfest shows. Hopefully, again, you've enjoyed them as much as I enjoyed recording them. I'm sure you are going to enjoy the films just as much too. Make sure you get those Grimfest passes. Speaking of which, the Grimfest pass, the free one that you can get for a loan, the word that you have got to email me is trees. Just send that to me, be the first, and you get a free Grimfest pass to watch alone. You can email it to me via our website, 60mw.co.uk. There's a contact us form on there. Or you can email us direct, which is contact at 60mw.co.uk. Give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter. Both of those are at 60mwpodcast. And as I said at the beginning of the show, give us a sub on YouTube too. All the links will be in the podcast notes. And so until tomorrow, when it's the seventh and final of these Grimfest interview shows, thank you for listening. Goodbye.